You're listening to Seven Churches, a teaching series at Shoreline Church with Pastor Pilgrim Benham. For more content, visit thisisshoreline.com. All right, so today we're beginning a study of the book of Revelation, chapters one through three. And for the next eight weeks, we're going to be in a series called Seven Churches. Now, uh, the book of Revelation, you should be there in chapter one now, it's called by some to be the grand central station of the Bible. Why is that? Because this is where all the trains kind of come in, the trains that is of thought, the begin in Genesis, the scarlet thread of redemption, the nation of Israel, uh, the Gentiles, the church, Satan, the Antichrist, etc. In fact, if you need a Bible, I didn't actually give you that opportunity. If you need a Bible, would you raise your hand and we'll get to you. Uh, Everyone needs a Bible. So sorry, guys. My Bible guys in the back are like, where? All right, so we'll pass those out. Um, The book of Revelation was written by the Apostle John, and there's no other book in the Bible that I believe causes or draws more criticism, uh, more confusion, or more contempt than this last book of our Bibles. And yet the first five words give away the point of the book. So if you're there, Revelation chapter 1, verse 1 says, first five words, the revelation of Jesus Christ. I'm always surprised when people say, hey, I'm reading the Bible from Genesis to Revelations with an S at the end of it. The reason I'm surprised by that is that it's not called the book of the Revelations, plural, but the singular revelation of Jesus Christ. It's not a group of things that John sees. It is one singular revelation. In fact, the word revelation on the screen is the Greek word apocalypsis, which means to unveil, to lay bare, to make naked, to disclose a truth or to reveal. But my favorite definition and the simplest one is just the unveiling of Jesus Christ. That's what the book really is about, the unveiling of Jesus Christ. This is God's self-disclosure to us, and it's the culmination of the person and work of Jesus Christ over and in creation. We're going to get today the true unveiling of Jesus, the real revelation of Jesus as we look at this first chapter. And then starting next week, we're going to dive into what Jesus says to the churches of Asia Minor. And I think, guys, um, hands down, this was probably my favorite study uh, in all of the scripture, uh, the chapters 1, 2, and 3 of Revelation. Probably uh, my favorite because we get a glimpse of who Jesus really is and what he desires for his church. You guys have been champs going for what, four months through the book of Ecclesiastes and you guys are still here alive and happy. That's amazing to me. And so now what I wanna do is change gears a little bit, jump to the New Testament, see Jesus and his, his desire for the church. Now, how many of you have seen the show Fixer Upper? Has anyone seen the show Fixer Upper? A lot of people say my wife looks like Joanna Gaines who's pregnant. Please don't go up to my wife and say, oh, Joanna's pregnant. Why aren't you pregnant? Please don't do that. My wife will smile and then walk away. Uh, if you notice on the show, Chip and Joanna put a big uh, kind of uh, picture, if you would, a big banner of the previous look of the house. You know the show, they kind of put it on on two uh, trailers that move away. And what they do is they say, are you ready to see your new house? And the people go, of course we are. And so they basically pull uh, these two large pictures aside. If you don't know, go Google it and watch it. And the people always start crying or they start convulsing. They just get super excited. They start laughing. They start clapping. They hug each other. And they can't believe what they're seeing. 
In a sense, that's what we're doing today. Uh, but we're going to discover far more than just a nicely remodeled house with shiplap and barn doors. No, we're going to see our Savior in all of his resplendent, unveiled glory. And so to that end, let's look at Revelation chapter 1, uh, the rest of verses 1 through 3, and then we'll pray. Verses 1 through 3 say, the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants things which must shortly take place. That's the idea of end time events, eschatology, what must shortly take place in the future. And he sent and signified it by his angel to his servant, John who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, to all things that he saw. And then he says this, blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of this prophecy and keep those things which are written in it for the time is near. We're given a special blessing by listening or reading and then actually keeping the things we're gonna study in the next eight weeks. So special blessing, awesome. I'm looking for a blessing anywhere I can find it. So thank you, Lord, there's a blessing for us this morning. Would you bow your heads and we'll pray one more time. Father, glorify your name. Bless this time as we open the scriptures. Would you open your heart to us? Lord, would you allow us to be changed from the inside out? The world says that we need to conform from the outward to the inward. We ask, Lord, that you would conform us from the inner man to the outer. Because outwardly we're wasting away, but inwardly we can be becoming renewed daily. And so, Lord, renew our minds and our hearts today as we look into the deep things of you, as we see Jesus like never before. Would you just uh, unveil him in our own lives, in our own hearts? And if there's anyone here today that does not yet know Jesus, Lord, would you draw them, Father? Would you allow them today to come to saving faith in their knowledge of who Jesus is, that they'd respond and receive the righteousness of Christ imputed to them? Lord, would you work in our community? We thank you so much for our friends around the, the area. We think of Pastor Joe Harris up at Calvary 813 in South Tampa. Bless him today. Lord, continue to strengthen his family, his marriage. And Lord, use the word of God in that fellowship to impact downtown Tampa for your glory. We love you, Lord. We commit the rest of our day to you. In Jesus' name, God's people said, amen. What's the first thing that comes into your mind when you see the words on the screen? It's the first thing that comes into your mind. For some of you, it's the smoke, the pillar of smoke ascending from the Twin Towers. Some of you maybe have a picture of Osama bin Laden or planes going down in fields or into the Pentagon. Some of you have a picture maybe of the president. Uh, but I guarantee most of us see those towers going up in smoke. What comes to mind, the first thing that comes to mind when you see this name? What's the first thing that comes to mind? Probably, uh, now what about this comes to mind? Uh, maybe another Muppet, maybe Big Bird, I don't know. Uh, now what about this name? What comes to mind when you hear the name Jesus? What's the first thing that comes to mind? Now most of you didn't mean to, but many of you in your minds I pictured Jim Caviezel from The Passion of the Christ movie made famous by Mel Gibson. Uh, but see, who Jesus is, is very confusing if we were solely to listen to the celebrities of our day, or even the religious leaders of our time. If we left today after service and just went over to downtown Lakewood Ranch, and we were to uh, have lunch and just survey people eating lunch. So, hey, who's Jesus? Will you tell me who Jesus is? You'd hear a lot of responses, right? You'd hear, well, he's a good teacher, or he's a, he was a religious zealot. He was a fanatic. Uh, he, you may hear he was God. Uh, but most of us are going to hear misunderstandings about who Jesus really is. 
Of course, there's the cultural response of who Jesus is. There's Ricky Bobby's Jesus. Ricky Bobby said, okay, Jesus is, I don't like to pray to the grown-up Jesus. I like the baby Jesus. He's eight pound, six ounce. He's wearing a golden fleece diaper. I'd rather pray to that Jesus than the grown-up Jesus. Or some, Jesus is more, nothing more really than just our homeboy. Uh, he's, a, he's a pop icon who's kind of funny to make fun of. I saw there's a Jesus uh, action figure, and I'm not sure what he does, but they have a Jesus action figure. Um, Jesus' name is said a lot in churches on Sunday and on job sites on Monday. When someone hits their thumb, they say Jesus, and then his middle name is H, apparently, and then Christ, and they pray to him when they hit their uh, thumb with the hammer. Uh, a lot of us think of Jesus as someone who was maybe a hippie with long hair and, and he wore this kind of flowing garment and he kind of floated around and maybe, maybe he would lose in an arm wrestling competition with your sister. That's a lot of people have that view of Jesus. Uh, some of our worship songs, Micah and I talk often about this, about the lyrics that we sing. Some of our lyrics sound like a John Mayer song to uh, our boyfriend Jesus, right? It's just, it's effeminate. And so um, a, a lot of us recoil from that and then think, no, 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 Jesus He's strong. In fact, he's a gun-toting Republican who's excited about genocide and nuclear war. That's my Jesus. Well, I don't know about you, church, but can I just say this? I am tired of hearing about the wrong Jesus. Amen? I'm tired of, of hearing about the wrong Jesus. Um, at one time in the book of John, chapter 12, some Greeks come up to Philip, who was one of Jesus' 12 disciples, and they make an amazing request. Notice on the screen, John chapter 12, it says, now among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. So these came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and this is what they asked him. Sir, we wish to see Jesus. What a simple request. I just wanna see Jesus. Do you know where he's at? Can I see him? Will you show him to me? Did you know, church, that's why we exist? That's why Shoreline exists, so that people can see Jesus. That's why I follow Jesus into ministry, so I could see Jesus. That's what drives my ministry, drives my marriage, drives my life, my parenting, my witness as a neighbor. It's I want people to see Jesus. That's what guides my giving, my spending, my prayer life, my participation in our community. It's I want to see Jesus, and I want others to see Jesus. Jesus. That's my desire, and I know that's our desire. Because today we're going to see Jesus unlike we've probably ever seen him before. And many of you have seen the new Star Wars movie, uh, The Last Jedi, and it has mixed reviews. Some people love it, some people hate it. Well, remember the Return of the Jedi, the original Return of the Jedi, uh, when Darth Vader's mask came off. You remember that moment? There was a moment when I was a little boy watching that, and I was kind of excited. What's he going to look like? Take off the mask. And I was really disappointed. He looks like an old bald guy that like fell. He's like Humpty Dumpty. I'm like, I was disappointed. Uh, but what would Jesus look like if we took the mask off? In other words, if we were to take away the veil of popular culture or the Jim Caviezel mindset, or we were to take off the, the humanity, which happened in a moment on that Mount of Transfiguration, just take away the humanity for a minute. Let's see him in his deity. What would Jesus look like if we took off our presuppositions, our preconceptions, or some of the false doctrine that's out there today about who Christ is? What would he look like? Would he be five foot nine uh, with long brown hair with an English accent wearing Birkenstocks? Would that be the Jesus that we see in this text? Well, we're going to see a, a Jesus like we've never seen before. In fact, as we outline chapter one, and you're taking note, here's the outline. So you can kind of see where we're going today. We're going to look at the background of Revelation. We just read it in verses one through three. We're going to, um, this is Warren Wiersbe's 
uh, outline, so I, I borrowed it from him. I'll pay him back. Uh, the Christ that John knew is verses four through eight. The Christ that John saw is verses nine through 11. I just wanna see Jesus. And then there's the Christ that John heard in verses 12 through 20. Who is Jesus? That's the question John answers this morning. Now look back uh, at verse two with me. Verse two, John says this, that he bore witness to two things, the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. Will you circle um, uh, verse two where it says that he bore witness, circle that word witness, and also circle the word testimony or highlight them or underline them, witness and testimony. Both of those words have the same root word. It's where we obtain the word martyr from in the English. Um, it means to witness or bear witness or give evidence or testify. Uh, you could say you're standing before a judge and you're testifying of what you've seen and what you've heard. And notice John is bearing witness to two things, to the word of God and the testimony, the eyewitness account of Jesus Christ. That's something that John was an eyewitness of. Okay, and guys, that's, by, by the way, the simplest form of witnessing. I'm just gonna, I'm gonna testify to what the word of God has done in my life and, and what Jesus has done in my life. I'm just gonna testify to those two things, my testimony and the word. It's those two things. Sometimes we're like, what do I say to someone in that situation? I'm not sure how to share my faith. I'm, I'm kind of feeling awkward. What do I do? Well, we can share the word of God. A lot of you do that on the Bible app. You just kind of share scripture uh, images or you kind of uh, post them on Twitter and that's great. Like I'm gonna, I'm gonna just share the word. But also our testimony. Uh, this is who I am in Christ. This is what Jesus has done for me. You don't have to have all the apologetics figured out. That is good for us to grow in. But any of us, all of us this morning, if someone asks us, why are you so happy? Or what does that shoreline thing on your car mean? God's gonna throw you in a situation. What do I say? Well, you can err on one of those two. I'm gonna, I'm gonna share the word of God and how it's impacted me, or I'm gonna share my own testimony. And notice verse three, he said that we're blessed when we read and when we hear and when we keep the things that are in the book of Revelation. Uh, now let's see the Christ that John knew. Look at verse four. It says, John to the seven churches which are in Asia. And then he says, continuing in verse four, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, and the ruler over the kings of the earth. Now, if some of you Bible scholars notice this, there's a picture of the Trinity in those verses. Look back at verse four. Grace to you and peace from him. This is the Father who was, who is, and who is to come. Then we see the picture of the, the Holy Spirit. He calls it the seven spirits. Uh, this could be the fullness of the Spirit in Isaiah, uh, the sevenfold Spirit of God, or it could be a picture of how the Holy Spirit is speaking to each one of the seven churches, or it's a number of completion and the Holy Spirit is complete. It could be any of those things, but it's speaking of the Holy Spirit, singular. And then verse five, Jesus Christ. Now notice that Jesus in verse five is given three descriptions. So you guys with me, track with me, and I wanna look at each one of these for a minute. First of all, he says, Jesus Christ is the faithful witness, okay? All three of these depict Jesus's earthly ministry. But I like this first one, that Jesus was the faithful witness. In other words, he was the one the Father um, allowed to represent him in fully, faithfully um, exegeting who the Father is. 
And so Jesus was not an unfaithful witness who maybe changed the story a little bit. He came to fully testify. This is who the Father is. All throughout the book of John, you see him saying, I'm just testifying to what I've seen and heard. This is who my Father is. I only say and do those things that please the Father. He was a faithful witness. I love that there's an old Baptist missionary society that has a symbol uh, of an ox. And I kind of like this. There's the ox and an altar. And the inscription uh, on some of these, or actually there it is, ready for either. See it above the uh, altar. It says ready for either. Uh, The idea is that uh, Jesus' mission was to plow if that were God's will, or to die on the altar if that were God's will. We plow a while, then we die on the altar. That's a picture of Jesus. What a picture of his devotion to the Father. Uh, A.W. Tozer says this, with no side interests, he, Jesus, moved with steady purpose, almost with precision toward the cross. He would not be distracted or turned aside. He was completely devoted to the cross, completely devoted to the rescue of mankind because he was completely devoted to his Father's will. See, Jesus was the faithful witness. And so for that reason, Jesus, above all men who have been descended from Adam, he has the greatest ministry, the greatest ministry. But he also came secondly, notice, in verse five, as the firstborn from the dead. Now, listen very carefully. This does not mean that he was a created being, but he was the first man to die and rise again to eternal life and never to die again. Someone says, wait, what about Lazarus? Lazarus was risen, but then he died again, right? He had to die a second time. Jesus is the first to die and then to rise again, never to die again. Paul told the Colossians in Colossians 1.8 that Jesus is the head of the body, the church. He's the beginning. He's the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. So Jesus' death and resurrection give him the highest priority, highest ministry, the highest priority. But thirdly, notice, church, He's also the ruler over the kings of the earth. Jesus today sits on a pure white throne and he reminds the kings and rulers of the earth who rule with a different type of rule, oppression and fear and political posturing and immorality. Jesus says, no, my rule and reign comes through a scepter of righteousness. So remember what Satan offered to Jesus through surrender and defeat. If you do this, if you'll surrender, And through defeat, if you'll worship me, then I'll give you all the kingdoms of the earth. Jesus claimed by rightful um, uh, right, ultimately, by his humility and obedience to death and resurrection uh, at Calvary. And so ultimately, every knee will uh, bow and every tongue will confess. And so Jesus has the greatest authority. uh, In his earthly ministry, the greatest ministry, the greatest priority, the greatest authority. Jesus' first coming was very significant. And that's the John, uh, Jesus that John knew. He was aware of, of that. He had been an eyewitness right there firsthand. He was there at the cross. He was there at the resurrection. He understood. And so we see kind of the benefit of Jesus' first coming in the next few verses. Look at verse, uh, the rest of uh, verse 5. To him, Jesus, who loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood, verse 6, and made us kings and priests, to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. And then he says in verse seven, for his future coming, behold, he's coming with clouds. Every eye will see him, even they who pierced him, Israel. And all the tribes of the earth will mourn because of him, even so, amen. Awesome kind of text there. We could spend a month just in this 
in these two verses, three verses, but it just gives us a picture of, of knowing that we're loved. Church, you're loved. Sister, you're loved today. Uh, you're washed from your sins, not because of your obedience and your goodness, but because of his blood. Uh, he's made you, uh, you may feel illegitimate, he's made you to be kings and priests to his God and Father. We're saints, the scripture says. A lot of us feel like ain'ts, but the scripture tells us we're saints, we're priests, we're kings. Uh, and to him be the glory. Amazing. But he's coming again. And every eye will see him. And I love what Spurgeon says about this. He says, there is no true mourning for sin until the eye has seen Christ. It is a beautiful remark of an old divine that eyes are made for two things at least. Your eyes are made for two things. First to look with and next to weep with. The eye which looks to the pierced one is the eye which weeps for him. Wow. You and I one day will bow before him having already received him, having already seen him and already have wept. And so look at verse eight. This is Jesus now speaking. He says, I am, it's a picture of uh, the burning bush and a picture uh, of those I am statements throughout the book of John. He says, I am, here it is, the alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end, says the Lord, who is and who was and who is to come, the almighty Jesus says, I'm the alpha and the omega. That's the Greek first letter and the last letter in the Greek alphabet. If he were to say this in English, he would say, I am the A to Z. I'm the first to last. I'm the, with your vehicle, the driver and the mechanic. If you're on a flight, I'm the pilot and the steward. I'll be with you when you start your day and I'll be there when it comes to an end and every moment in between. Jesus didn't come into existence when he was born of a virgin. He's always existed and he will always exist. He said, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words and I will never pass away. They'll always remain. What a comfort for you and I. What a comfort to know that when we stepped foot into existence, Jesus already said, I am. Uh, as we live our lives under the sun, Jesus says, I am. And when we step from life into death, into eternity, uh, Jesus will always be. Uh, he says, I'm the one who is, who was, who is to come. I'm the almighty. Uh, you want to circle the word almighty. It's the word, the phrase throughout the Old Testament, El Shaddai, the uh, patriarchal name for God. The almighty, El Shaddai. Okay, so now here's John's testimony. Go back to verse nine. Here's what he says. He says, I, John, both your brother and companion in the tribulation and kingdom and patience of Jesus Christ, I was on the island that is called Patmos for the word of God and for the testimony of Jesus Christ. There's those two things again. He said, I testified of what Jesus did in my life and then I preached and because of that, I was sent in exile to this uh, island of Patmos. Now here's a picture of Patmos. Uh, I had the chance this week to fly there and take that picture. Actually, I just Google searched it. Uh, it's a rocky, uh, remote island. Now on the other side of that, I didn't want to show you the other side. There's a bunch of cruise ships and these beautiful little villages because it is a destination for, uh, they actually have the seven churches of Revelation cruise. So hey, if you're going to go on a cruise, why not go on a biblical cruise? That sounds exciting. And so I want to show you this picture. That's where John was exiled and that's where he received um, this revelation of Jesus. Uh, and so um, he was exiled because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. Look at verse 10. It says, uh, he says, I was in the spirit on the Lord's day, that would have been on a, a Sunday, and I heard behind me a loud voice as of a trumpet. 
I was standing there in a loud voice like a trumpet. I was in marching band. I stood in front of the trumpets. That's not a place you want to be, all right? This is loud. This is, uh, this is alarming. It's disarming. It's powerful. And this is what the voice said, verse 11. I am the alpha and the omega, the first and the last. And what you see, write in a book and send it to the seven churches which are in Asia. And here they are, to Ephesus, to Smyrna, to Pergamum. You're to send it to Thyatira, to Sardis, to Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. Sometimes Pergamum is uh, known as Pergamos. Okay, so these seven churches who are receiving this letter, I need you to track with me a little bit. These are seven literal churches. They actually did exist. They were cities where churches were gathered. They had pastors and elders and a flock. And Jesus has a very specific message for them. But... These seven churches also can be applicable to any church at any time. In other words, though the church that met in Ephesus needed to hear, hey, you've left your first love, repent, return and do the first works. They needed to hear that. But so do we. You and I, the church 2,000 years later, we need to hear, hey, you've left your first love. You need to repent and need to return. It still applies. It's kind of like reading a newspaper article where back in the day they would submit Dear Abby letters. You remember those? They would write into Dear Abby, and I think Abby died, and they still had someone named Abby that was answering the correspondence. And that was for that one person to read, oh, Abby answered my question with her psychobabble nonsense, but she answered the question. And all of us can listen in as well. It's for one person, but we can all glean. Now, some people take church history, and what they do is they assign each of these seven churches uh, to different eras in church history. So they were like, the church in Ephesus was the first century church, and the church in Smyrna was like the second and third century church. And then, and though that's intriguing, and there are some parallels, and it's really fun to read, and it's very insightful, there's definitely correlations. It's not implied in the text. It's not stated by the author. So we're not going to interpret it that way. Uh, you could apply it that way. We're not going to interpret it that way uh, as errors in church history. Now, something very interesting about these seven churches, and for us to glean from today, kind of the main thing is, listen, each of these seven churches needs something very specific. And if we were to scan over them, you'll notice each of them needs a remedy. Uh, there's no perfect church. Every church has its strengths and its struggles. But the remedy for each of these churches is none other than Jesus himself. Uh, let me put them on the screen for you and kind of outline the churches. Notice there's Patmos off in the uh, Aegean Sea, and you'll see Ephesus, Smyrna, uh, and the like. This is kind of a, in modern-day Turkey. And so uh, let me show you kind of the listing of each of the churches. Michael, I think you can put the next slide up. Um, Ephesus is a picture of a busy church, the busy church. Uh, they have endurance, they have perseverance, they have hard work, but they forgot Jesus, even with all the doctrinal accuracy that they had. They left their first love. And they needed, listen, they needed to see Jesus with eyes of love again. And then we have Smyrna, the suffering church. Jesus said, I know your poverty and your afflictions. Don't be afraid. And he identifies with them from the agony of the cross. The church at Smyrna needed to see Jesus on the cross. The church at Pergamum was known as the compromising church. Um, they loved Jesus, but they were being enticed to sin. And Jesus says, listen, I've got hidden manna. I've got an intimate relationship I'd like to have with you, but you keep sinning and you're cutting yourself off from me. And they needed to see Jesus wielding the sword, the uncompromising word of God. 
They needed to see Jesus. The Thyatira church was the tolerant church. They let the coffers and the seats and the pews be filled with immorality and idolatry and adultery. No repentance. And Jesus shows the authority that he received after being exalted from death to the highest place. And they needed to see Jesus, but they needed to see him coming in judgment. The, the church in Sardis was called the dead church. They had a reputation that they were alive. But Jesus said, no, 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 don't be fooled. You're dead. You're dead. And he says, I'm coming again. And I'm worthy because I was put to death. And he says, you know, if you're a dead church, you just need to see me risen. You need to see the risen Christ who holds the book of life. I'll bring life. I've got the book of life. The church at Philadelphia uh, was the opportune church. They were waiting. They were watching. Jesus says, I'm holding the keys of David, and I'm opening doors that no one else can shut and open. But listen, they needed to look to Jesus and what doors that he was opening. And then finally, we have the church of Laodicea, known as the pitiful church. And they thought they were great, but Jesus says, actually, you're lukewarm, and you're cold, and you're wretched, and you're poor, blind, and naked. And he, he's ultimately on the outside looking in, knocking. He's been pushed out of the church. And he says, I, I just want to have you open the door. I want to come in with you. I want to have a relationship with you. I want to eat with you. And they're blind, so they needed to receive him. And until that, they actually would not even be able to see Jesus in the first place. We're going to be looking at these seven churches more in depth in the coming weeks, starting next week, and their admonition to our church, Shoreline. But for the rest of our time this morning, who does this powerful voice belong to? John turns around, and what does he see? Who does he see? He sees none other than the Lord Jesus Christ in all of his unveiled glory. Look at the Christ that John heard, verse 12. He says, then I turned to see the voice that spoke with me. And having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. We'll find out what those are in a minute. And in the midst of the seven lampstands, one like the Son of Man. He was clothed uh, with a garment down to the feet and girded about the chest with a golden Band. His head and hair were white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes like a flame of fire. His feet were like fine brass, as if refined in a furnace, and his voice as the sound of many waters. He had in his right hand seven stars, and out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword, and his countenance was like the sun shining in its strength. Wow. Amazing. Okay, let's start and kind of work through these. First of all, in verse 13, he says that he was like the Son of Man. This is a direct reference to Ezekiel, or the Son of Man. 94 times this phrase is used in Ezekiel. And Jesus loved to designate himself as the Son of Man, especially in the book of Luke. Countless times in the gospel referring to his deity from Ezekiel, the Son of Man. Uh, notice next what he's wearing. Jesus is wearing a garment down to the feet and girded about the chest with a golden band. This is what the high priest would wear. The high priest would, was, of course, the one who went in to offer the sacrifices to God for the people. He was the go-between, the mediator for man and God. Uh, the writer of Hebrews says that there's only one mediator, and ultimately, uh, the writer of Hebrews says that Jesus, as a mediator, was tempted in every way, yet with, without sin. And he offered himself as the high priest's sacrifice. Uh, but this is also a picture of a judge Notice his hair. His hair and his head were white like wool, as white as snow. He's got white hair. That's a little bit different than where we see Jesus leaving in the book of Acts. A little bit different. He's got white hair now. 
Uh, white hair tells me two things. First of all, wisdom. My grandparents have white hair. Um, and Proverbs talks about white hair being the crown of the righteous or the wise. I love that. You can usually tell people who have white hair, they're, they're typically going to be those who have lived their lives and they've been there, done that, got the t-shirt. In fact, they, they built the t-shirt factory. Okay, they've, <laughs> they understand life and they can offer some great wisdom. So here's Jesus with wisdom. But secondly, white in the scripture always refers to purity. So this is a picture of uh, purity as Jesus walks onto the scene. And notice his eyes next. It says that his eyes were like flames of fire. If you're taking note, fire is always used in the Bible of judgment. Some Christians say, I just want the fire of God to fall. Um, I don't know. I don't know if I'm praying that. Uh, maybe the Pentecost uh, picture of fire, but ultimately uh, it's used of judgment. Jesus' eyes are the eyes of an all-knowing judge. God is omniscient, which means he's all-knowing. He knows every thought you've ever thought, every sin you've ever committed, every wrong that's ever happened. Usually we stop there and we get scared, but see, he's also the one who knows every hurt we've experienced. He knows every wrong that's been done to us, all the pain we've ever felt. He's an all-knowing, and for the sinner, that brings panic, and for the saint, that brings peace. His eyes are flame of fire of judgment. Today, if you're here and you say, you know, I'm just here to kind of look the part. I'm playing church. I'm just looking like I'm doing this. I'm not really doing it. The eyes of fire, they burn right through all of the pretense, all the masks that we wear. He sees our heart. And that doesn't have to be a scary thing. That can be an honest thing. And look at verse 15. His feet were like fine brass, as if refined in a furnace. Bronze or brass, also symbolic of judgment. Jesus' feet are swift to walk into the courtroom and pronounce judgment on mankind. Uh, look at his voice. It says his voice, first of all, was a trumpet. Now it's the voice as the sound of many waters. What a powerful description. Now, I've never been to Niagara Falls. Uh, has anyone been there, been to Niagara Falls? All right, good amount of you. Um, actually, I saw a picture this week, amazing. I was taken this week where it was mostly frozen around it. Pretty awesome. What I've heard, though, and tell me if this is true, what I've heard is that when you're there, you can't hear anything but the falls. That's all you can hear. It drowns out every other noise. Even your own conversation is trumped by the sound of the waterfall. Uh, it's powerful, and yet it's also soothing. That's why they make... YouTube videos or apps or, or back in the day tapes that you could go to sleep to. There are sounds of waterfalls. You can listen to them. It's soothing, yet it's also powerful. What an apt picture and appropriate description of Jesus' voice. Don't you just see Jesus' voice? I can already picture it. It's powerful, and yet it's incredibly soothing, and it drowns out every other voice. It's awesome. Notice in his hand, verse 16, he had seven stars. We'll find out what those are in a minute. And out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword. He's got a sword for a mouth. I remember telling my son Aiden that when he was eight years old. Hey, Aiden, did you know Jesus, when he comes again, he's going to have a mouth. Uh, when he opens his mouth, his tongue is like a sword. And Aiden was like, oh, that, he actually said this. He actually said, oh, that's really cool. Uh, does that mean that he's going to use his tongue to cut the clouds in half and give me marshmallows? I was like, no, it does not mean that. Absolutely not. But it is pretty awesome. He loved that picture. See, this is the double-edged sword of grace and truth. Uh, grace and truth, the double-edged sword. Uh, now we come to the final glimpse of Jesus, his face. And it says that his face uh, was, his countenance was like the sun shining in its strength. What a beautiful description of the holiness of the Lord. 
Uh, it's like the sun in all of its brilliance shining, bringing warmth, uh, bringing light. Now, after seeing this, what would your, dis- what would your response be? Now, what was Isaiah's response in Isaiah chapter 6 when he saw the glory of the Lord? What, what was his response? What was John's response? What would your response, what would my response be? Panic. What happens uh, in, in Isaiah's um, account is that he falls down and says, woe is me, I'm a man of unclean lips. I'm in trouble. I'm undone. And John falls, notice that he falls to his feet as though he was dead. Uh, you and I would do the same thing. But notice what Jesus does. Uh, Jesus says in verse 17, it says that he laid his right hand on me. And he said, fear not or do not be afraid. I'm the first and the last. Verse 18, I'm he who lives and was dead. And behold, I'm alive forevermore. Amen. And I have the keys of Hades and of death. Uh, Write the things which you've seen and the things which are and the things which will take place after this. A lot of people see verse 19 as a template for the whole book of Revelation. Uh, Verse 20 says, the mystery of the seven stars which you saw in my right hand Okay, here's what they are. And the seven golden lampstands, what are they? The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands, which you saw, are the seven churches. Uh, I tried to find an appropriate picture of what this may have looked like to John, but sadly, John didn't have an iPhone to capture this on camera. But I do love this artist's conception. I think this is kind of a cool view, a little bit different from the Jesus we leave in the book of Acts. He's brilliant, he's bright, he's dangerous. Uh, And he's powerful. Now, ultimately, what does he do with John? He lays his right hand on him and he says, fear not. I'm standing among the seven churches. I'm right here in their midst. And I've got a word for them. I've got a message for the angels, for the pastors of those churches. And we're going to find out what those messages are next week. And I think we're going to be incredibly encouraged as we open up Uh, these next few chapters. We're gonna take a break from the rest of the book of Revelation uh, when we go into Easter and and do some other studies this year. Uh, But we're gonna be greatly encouraged and challenged as a church because there's something Jesus has to say to each one of these churches. He has something to say where he commends them, not all of them, but mostly. He has something that he corrects in them. Uh, He has something that he says is a crown for them. And then he has something that he refers back to in chapter one, uh, back to this description of him to encourage them. And I think we're all gonna be challenged and encouraged. So as we close this morning, I wanna invite the band forward and we're gonna partake in communion in a few moments uh, after we sing a song together. So go ahead and close your Bibles and I I wanna just take a minute and encourage us this morning. Do you desire to see that Jesus? Or like Ricky Bobby, is it I'd rather see the, the baby Jesus. I just saw baby Jesus in the, In the manger, and that's the manageable Jesus. I can handle that. He's a light and he's helpful and I can kind of receive him in my life and ask him to do things for me. Or the Jesus that walked and healed and helped. I like that Jesus. I don't know if I like this Jesus. This is the bronze feet, fiery eyes. He's He's got a sword for a tongue. I'm not sure about this Jesus. Well, here's what scares me. Paul told the Galatians in chapter three that they possibly were being bewitched. He said, clearly Christ was portrayed in front of you as crucified. The ideas of a billboard flashing a huge advertisement, Christ crucified. Paul told the Corinthians that, hey, I resolved to know nothing among you except Christ and him crucified. 
And to these same churchgoers later, Paul said, you know, I'm concerned about you that if someone came and introduced a different Jesus to you, you would receive it. I'm concerned for you that you would just adopt this, just like Eve was easily taken by the fruit, by the serpent. Listen, if we're going to be a church individually or corporately that lives effectively, then we need to see the unveiled Jesus in our own lives. And we need to remember the simplicity and the power of the gospel. See, a healthy understanding of the gospel, Christ and him crucified, that's a remedy for any church. Look back over these seven churches one more time because I see the gospel message even in the churches. Put them on the screen for a minute. We see Ephesus, that Jesus first loved us. We see Smyrna, that Jesus died. The church of Pergamum, we see that Jesus redeems. He buys us back. Thyatira, we see Jesus is exalted with authority. To the church at Sardis, we see Jesus is alive and he's coming again. Philadelphia sees Jesus coming with the new Jerusalem. And finally, Laodicea, Jesus invites sinners. He invites them to open the door. Do you know this Jesus? Have you invited him to open the door and to eat with you? As we close, a quote from Anne Graham Lotz. She says, nothing is beyond his ability, whether it's a problem to solve, a marriage to reconcile, a memory to heal, a guilty conscience to cleanse, a sin to forgive, a business to save, a budget to stretch, another mouth to feed, a body to clothe, a boss to please, a job to find, a habit to break, a captive to free, a prodigal to return, an addiction to overcome, or anything else we could name. If the living Logos of God has the power to create and sustain the universe, how? How can you think his power is insufficient for you? Do you see this Jesus, the way he's described here? Would you bow your heads with me for a minute and your eyes closed? Do you see the righteous judge, all-knowing, all-seeing, all-powerful? And when he looks at you here this morning, all the excuses, all the pretending, all the plain church, it goes away. It's burned away by the eyes of blazing fire. All the fears are taken away by the hand that touches your shoulder today and says, fear not. All sins are taken away by the high priest who understands how hard it is to fight temptation. All the other voices that call out and speak to you, they cry, they cry out and are silenced by the voice like powerful rushing water. All the things you thought you knew about life are answered by the one who's wise, whose hair is white as snow. And today, what does he say when he looks at you? One day, you and I, all of us will stand before the Lord. And what will he say? What will I say? Hopefully all I can utter is praise. As I bow my knees in adoration, I pray that he'll pronounce those words, well done, good and faithful servant. Do you wish to see Jesus, church? We need to see Jesus unveiled in our own lives and in this church. We need the gospel. Now, what is the gospel? The good news, the great news, that though we were separated from God because we each went our own way, we went astray, God loved us and pursued us and provided a way of salvation, not through the path of religion or perfection, but through faith in his son. Jesus has made a way for us. He who knew no sin became sin for us. He took our sin upon himself to carry our cross and bear our punishment and grant us forgiveness today. 
through his death on the cross. But listen, he didn't stay dead, he rose. And this is how he is today, standing at the door knocking. In this moment, do you wanna see Jesus? Thanks for listening to the Shoreline Church Podcast. Visit us Sundays at 10 a.m. at 5100 Lakewood Ranch Boulevard. For more content or to learn more about Jesus, visit our website. This is shoreline.com.